Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madam Cronin, and today we're discussing 2022. I've been thinking a lot about the year 2022 and what it means for the course of history. And ever since I started Hence the Future podcast, I've been thinking about how technological trends, political trends, economic trends, how they all come together to shape the next direction that we take through the space-time continuum. And I wanted to bring together an episode with all of my thoughts on the economic challenges that we face as a world, the social and political challenges that we face, and some reasons to be optimistic for the future. Because as I see it, we are about to experience one of the most pivotal and tumultuous transitions in human history. We are at the end of the long-term debt cycle. We're at the end of the four turning cycles. We're at the end of the 250-year revolutionary cycle, and there are some incredible challenges that we have to face in the next five years or so, but what's on the other side of that could be an incredible world, a world where people are able to trade freely with one another without any sorts of limitations from top-down fiat government structures, and where we can lay a foundation for the next epoch of human civilization and prosperity to come for all future generations. And I really believe that what we're experiencing right now is a time period that future generations are depending on us to get right. If we get this right, we have an entire world of possibilities open to us. We could colonize the cosmos. We can solve so many of the problems that we care so deeply about. And if we get this wrong, we could be subjecting our kids, our grandkids, and all future generations to a similar situation that already exists in China a panopticon, top-down, centrally planned world where people, individuals, have very limited rights and almost everything is controlled by a small group of plutocrats or oligarchs. So let's look at some of these challenges that we're facing and then we'll get into reasons to be optimistic. When we look at the economic challenges that we face, The clearest signal that I see is that global debt is at an all-time high. We have about 370% debt-to-GDP ratio as a world. That means we have almost four times as much debt as the world generates in productive output in a year. So the world has never been this top-heavy before. It's never had this big of a mountain of debt hanging over the world economy. And when you look at the United States, it's really telling to look at the debt ceiling over the last several decades. And I have it here broken out by presidency, whether it's a Democrat or Republican administration in charge. And if you didn't see red or blue, you would have no way of knowing which one is Democrat and which one is Republican. Republicans like to portray themselves as being for smaller government, less government spending. But really, you can't see any difference here, whether you're have a Republican or a Democrat administration in charge, the debt ceiling keeps rising exponentially. And the question is, when will we have to eventually pay the piper? Here's a chart of M1, the money supply. And we can see here a really incredible statistic that I had to double, triple check because it is so hard to believe that this is true. But in fact, it is. 80% of all U.S. dollars ever created were created in just the last 22 months since the 2020 pandemic started. 80%. 
So whatever amount of wealth you had compared to all the dollars that exist out there, you're probably going to want to reduce that by several factors because 80% of all dollars were created in just the last 22 months. And when we look at the historic trends that have been accumulating up until now, there are some trends that stick out. You might have heard of the long-term debt cycle that Ray Dalio often talks about. This is a common experience throughout many civilizations that have come and gone throughout the course of history. And it always starts with a new world order. So the most recent time this happened was perhaps after World War II with the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, when we established a new global reserve currency, which was the US dollar, and it was exchangeable for gold. So that was something everyone could agree on. And this allowed for an incredible period of prosperity. We saw in the 1950s and the 1960s, so many people were living the American dream. People had the white picket fence, they had a stable job, they had healthy, large families. But then we started to see debt bubbles appear as these good times really rolled on and people got a little bit ahead of themselves and maybe borrowing more than they should or the government was spending more than it really should be responsibly able to. And so we saw some debt bubbles. We saw in 1971, Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard. That was essentially a default on the debt. But because we had the gold standard to fall back on, there was still some fractional reserve banking legitimacy there, even if they didn't have a one-to-one -one relationship of gold backing each dollar. There was some percent relationship. So we had 40% fractional reserve banking, and then 20%, and then 10%. And since the year 2000, we are at 0% fractional reserve banking requirements. That means banks do not have to actually hold a single piece of gold or a single actual dollar in order to lend out new dollars and create dollars out of nothing. And so we are now in this latter part of the cycle where money is being printed at a rapid pace. There is a lot of global tumult that is starting to appear. We have the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. We then had the 2020 COVID pandemic. Money printing has rapidly increased since then. And now we're starting to hit the debt and political restructuring part of this cycle, where the next world order is starting to emerge. We can also see in the four turnings pattern how you typically have these periods of crisis, a high, an awakening, an unraveling, and then the next crisis. And so we already went through the crisis of World War II. We then had the high of the 50s and 60s, then the awakening in the 60s and 70s, the unraveling since the 1980s. And now we are in the next crisis period where we're going to have to reset all the debt books. And historically, this has only really happened through World War. That is how the debt books all get reset after these long cycles. And essentially, whoever wins the World War guess to decide what the next rules are for the next cycle. So here you can see the 250 year revolutionary cycle. This is, I believe, perhaps might be the most relevant of all the cycles and models we can look at, because you see there are these large revolutions that take place about every 250 years as the government gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the gap between the haves and the have nots gets wider and wider and wider. And eventually you need to have a revolution to restore some of the fairness in the system. So let's 
ask some open questions. First question I have is, how will the world reset the debt books this time around, given that a world war isn't really feasible, right? So in 1944, we had a world war, but now in the year 2022, we have nuclear weapons proliferation. So if there were a war between the great powers, it would not end well for anyone. And moreover, many of the wilder parts of the world have already been tamed. So the Middle East was kind of the last area where we could fight hot wars and not have major economic blowback for the rest of the system. But even that has come to an end. The U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. So there aren't really any other areas left to wage hot war that wouldn't seriously affect the economic system as a whole. And also, we can't fall back on the gold standard this time. So in 1971, we defaulted on our promise to exchange U.S. dollars for gold. And that was terrible. That was a default. But at least we had the gold standard to fall back on. We had all this gold in our reserves. We had some legitimacy for the fractional reserve banking requirements that were stated. And so there was still some trust inherent in the system. What's different now is we already have 0% fractional reserve requirements. We already printed 80% of all dollars ever created in the last 22 months. So what can we really fall back on next? What will be the next world order? What will it look like? What will be the next global reserve? And which futures should we be wary of? I would argue that a future where there is CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, that have total control over how people are and aren't able to spend their money and where they can and can't travel and who they can and can't meet with, essentially what is already the case in China with their social credit score, I would be very wary of applying that to the West and having a panopticon level of top-down control for this small group of people in charge, the central bankers, over the entire rest of the population. This is a future I am incredibly wary of. The next question is, which futures should we be striving towards? Which futures should we be hoping come into being? And I would argue that you can never go wrong striving for freedom, for people to have bodily autonomy, for people to be able to move to wherever they want to move to, to work on whatever they want to work on, spend money however they like to spend money on, and do whatever they want to do so long as they're not impinging on the freedoms of others. And I believe Bitcoin is the way that we can get to this ideal future where we are optimizing for freedom rather than top-down command and control. So let's look at what's going on in the world. Oftentimes on this podcast, we focus on what's happening in America, but there is so much going on in the rest of the world. And I think it's worth noting what is going on in these other parts of the world, because it can serve as a harbinger for what's likely to come to America and to other countries in the near future. So the first example country I want to talk about is Australia. Australia currently has some of the strictest COVID policies in the world. They just announced a lockdown for unvaccinated where people who are unvaccinated can't leave their home for even an hour to exercise or to go to work. They are essentially imprisoned in their homes. So there are two classes of citizens in Australia, vaccinated and unvaccinated. And this recently hit the news because Novak Djokovic, one of the best tennis players in the world, who chooses not to get the vaccine, 
was granted an exemption to participate in the Australian Open. But then there was a major blowback where everyone in Australia was angry that they gave him an exemption and not others. So he is now being deported. And this just clearly shows that Australia is no longer a free country. They have concentration camps there. They have different rules depending on your level of compliance with those rules. And it's so clear that this is not about health. We know that exercising, going outdoors, being with loved ones, these aren't good for your health. So the fact that they do not allow you to even go outside to exercise shows that this is about control. This is not about health. Now here you can hear for yourself what the Australian Prime Minister says. There are only three reasons to leave the home now, not five. Work is not a reason to leave the home for the unvaccinated. The Chief Health Officer has also determined that restriction of movement is critical right now and that one hour of exercise for the next four days is not essential. Remember, these restrictions only apply to those who are not fully vaccinated. And it's particularly absurd when we consider what we know about the virus since the COVID-19 pandemic began. The main learning we have is that the virus gets milder over time. And yet the COVID lockdown policies in Australia and in other countries have gotten more and more draconian over time, even as the death rate of the virus has gone down and down. The other thing we know is that there doesn't appear to be much of a difference in deaths whether you have really draconian lockdown policies like in Australia, or whether you have no lockdown policies like in Sweden. The other thing we now know is that people who are both vaccinated and unvaccinated spread the disease. So that's yet another reason that these lockdowns just simply don't make sense. There's something similar going on in Kazakhstan, you might have heard in this past week, where essentially Kazakhstan has been falling against the dollar for decades, they have been printing money at an even more rapid pace than the U.S. And they had price controls so that energy prices wouldn't be crazy high in the country. But whenever you have artificial price controls, that creates supply shortages. There isn't enough energy to go around if the price of energy is kept artificially low. So what happened this past week is the government removed those price controls Energy prices skyrocketed because Kazakhstan is very dependent on the price of natural gas. And then riots took place. They literally burned down some government buildings. And then in response, the government shut down the internet. And this is really worrying when you think about, what if this happened in the West? What if this happened in your country? We're seeing something similar in Turkey. The lira has been collapsing in value against the dollar pretty exponentially. Prices are rising and now we're seeing police literally going to supermarkets, checking if their prices are quote unquote too high and then issuing fines if the prices are too high. Now these types of artificial price controls are what you tend to see before the collapse of a free market because the market is no longer free and you can't have artificial limits and still have a prosperous, well-functioning free market. This is something that is very worrying. And what's even more worrying is that this idea of price controls is now spreading to the United States. Here's the White House actually put out an executive order saying they are going to address meat and poultry prices. And then the even more worrying thing that I'm seeing in the United States is 
the limitation on free speech of what information you are and aren't allowed to consume. Recently, Joe Rogan did an episode with Dr. Robert Malone, and he brought up this term of mass formation psychosis, which is such an apt term. It really describes how everyone can be in this delusional state of mind all at once because everyone is looking for the cues that come from the top-down people in authority. And the funny thing is that this term, mass formation psychosis, went viral on Twitter. Everyone's been talking about it. And now the fact checkers come out saying, there's no such thing as mass formation psychosis. Look, I'm someone who does not believe in jumping to conclusions ever. I'm someone who believes that everyone should be able to consume all the information and no one should be able to tell anyone else what is and isn't true. The really worrying thing that I'm seeing is that only this mainstream narrative is accepted and anyone who questions this mainstream narrative is by definition an anti-vaxxer, anti-science, and therefore is not a real member of society. In Canada, Trudeau called the unvaccinated misogynistic and racist, so this gets into the dehumanizing of the unvaccinated. And in Israel, this is the most dangerous thing of all from my perspective, which is that they have implemented green passes that you have to scan in order to eat at McDonald's or other restaurants. And this is very similar to what already exists in China, where everyone has a social credit score. And if your score falls below a certain level, you can't do regular things. You can't leave the country for one. You can't travel to other provinces. You won't be able to get good loans at a good rate. You won't be able to live in places that you want to live. This is very, very worrying to me that we are implementing essentially, essentially re reducing every citizen down to a number or to a QR code that measures how compliant they are to the state's demands. And then the state has the ability to forbid them from doing whatever they like through this vaccine passport. And when you think about where we are with technology, what makes this so terrifying is that technology is already advanced enough for turnkey authoritarianism. Turnkey authoritarianism is what's in China, where the government has the ability to aggregate all the data on where people are, what they're doing, who they're talking to, what they're saying online, and giving people one score so that the government can top-down control everything about your life. And we are now introducing that to the West. We are implementing a social credit score for the West. And the only thing that's missing in the West is that government app that aggregates all the data from all the other apps. And so it's going to start with a vaccine passport. And then eventually that vaccine passport will also have track and trace. So it'll monitor your movements. It'll monitor who you interact with. And it'll be able to shut down your ability to travel ability to purchase goods, ability to get loans, and any other aspect of what you want to do in civilized life. There's also something similar going on in Germany, where there are efforts to merge vaccination and identity cards. So this is a method to be able to identify people and see their vaccination status, i.e. see how compliant they are and whether they deserve to have the good graces of the state. It's also worth noting that almost all of these leaders are members of the World Economic Forum. 
And the World Economic Forum is one of the ways that the central bankers interface with the rest of the world. It is a fact that there are people in this world that have the power to print money out of thin air. Now, just imagine for a second if you had the power of central bankers, if you could literally create dollars out of nothing at your will. And now imagine you have several non-government organizations that span the globe that you can use with this money printing ability to influence the course of history and to influence politicians and what they decide to do. These organizations are the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and they are all ways to influence what politicians do, what countries do, and therefore what course the world takes through the space-time continuum. So you can see here Justin Trudeau, Leo Varadkar, Jacinda Ardern, Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, Scott Morrison, Angela Merkel, Nafati Bennett. These are all people who are members of the World Economic Forum. So you have to take what they advise with a grain of salt because it's very clear they are getting monetary support, political support from the central bankers. So it is very likely that their incentives are in line with the central bankers. And this gets to the classic problem that creates this 250-year revolutionary cycle. After a revolution, after a new world order is created, people come around and they say, we need a government. And so you feed that government. And over time, the government grows and it gets bigger and bigger. And the scope of what it can manage is, gets bigger and bigger. And eventually, it goes after regular freedom-loving citizens and the state has gone too big, it's become too powerful, it's become too oppressive. And that's when the next revolution occurs. And I believe we are at this time period where the next revolution is occurring. It's already started, I would argue. But rather than it being a hot warfare like World War II, it's meme warfare. It's information warfare. It's warfare of cryptography, of monetary networks, of Bitcoin versus CBDCs of freedom-loving cypherpunks against top-down Malthusian central bankers, politicians, and financiers who want to keep things the way they are because they already have the power of God. If you knew that the trends were moving towards decentralization, that Bitcoin and DeFi and these movements are naturally emerging in the world, you might think that this is the window of opportunity where we can maintain our top-down control through CBDCs, through controlling these fear narratives to get people afraid of one another, to get people from congregating and deciding what's best for themselves. This is what's happening right now. And we have two outcomes. We have the outcome of freedom, a Bitcoin-led world where anyone can work on what they want to and people can decide for themselves how they like to collaborate, where they like to live, what they like to do. And another world that's ruled by CBDCs where you're only allowed to move, spend money, talk, do whatever is allowed by those who control the central bank digital currencies, those who control the information you're able to access. And so we are in this next part of the 250 year revolutionary cycle. 
started in 2008 with the subprime mortgage crisis. 2009 was when Satoshi released the Bitcoin white paper. And it is supposed to conclude sometime around 2025, maybe 2030 at the latest. But this is crunch time. This is when the future of our kids, grandkids, all our descendants is decided. And it depends on the decisions we make now. Now I'd like to get into some reasons to be optimistic. I, we obviously laid out many challenges that we face, both financial challenges, economic challenges, structural challenges, and political and societal challenges. But there are reasons to be optimistic as well. One reason to be optimistic is that there are freedom protests around the world protesting these draconian vaccine lockdown policies. We're seeing protests in Montreal, in Canada, we're seeing protests in France against Macron's calling the unvaccinated non-citizens. We're seeing protests in London. We're seeing protests all throughout Italy. And we're seeing other methods for information to emerge aside from mainstream media. We also saw the ex-head of the vaccine task force come out saying that we should end mass mandatory vaccinations and simply live with COVID because it is endemic. So we are starting to see some of the most credible people in health and also in government come out against these draconian fascist policies. And what's so amazing about Bitcoin and why I consider myself a Bitcoin maximalist is that Bitcoin provides a new form of governance that is best described as rules without rulers. So, so often what happens with these 250 year revolutionary cycles is that the rules are not to blame. The constitution is not to blame. It's the rulers that are to blame because over time they gain more and more power. They become more and more corrupt. The gap between the haves and the have nots widens. And then you need another revolution. What's so great about Bitcoin is that it provides rules without rulers. It provides a bottom up consensus mechanism that doesn't depend on the decisions of a small group of people with limited scope of interest that doesn't include the interests of regular people. We're also seeing Bitcoin is at an all time high with its hash rate. So even though the price has been dropping, the total hash rate has never been higher. So the security of the Bitcoin network and the amount of energy it would take to even make an attempt to thwart the Bitcoin network has never been higher. So the last thing I want to say today for this episode is that I really believe future generations are counting on us. And I don't think it's dissimilar to the plot of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, it's very clear that depending on their actions, there are two likely outcomes. If they are able to defeat the forces of Sauron and these evil forces that want to enslave all of the people of Middle Earth, and they are able to come out on top with truth and justice and bravery and courage and allow for Middle Earth to continue to be free, then we will have an incredible future ahead of us. We will be like the shining white city of Gondor with citadels all around, an incredible prosperity for many generations. But if we succumb to the forces of Sauron and Mordor and allow the people of Middle Earth to be enslaved, then we are damning our descendants to a terrible future, one where you can't escape 
the grip of top-down centralized control where you can't invent things freely, talk freely, access free information, decide for yourself what you want to put in your body, where you want to go, what you want to do with your life. And so this is that crunch time for us. It reminds me of when Aragorn in the final battle says for Frodo, and then he charges in, caring more about his friends and loved ones and the descendants and the world he's going to leave behind than his own life and what fate he may fall to. And that's where we stand. Are we going to stand for freedom, individualism, and ability to choose your own path in life? Or are we going to allow the fiat forces of Sauron control us through central bank digital currencies, lockdowns, and fear? The choice is ours. Thank you for listening. I wish you the best. And we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future. Present and the future.